0: Matthew chapter 1 beginning in verse 1. A lot of people travel this time of the year. We want to pray for all the West Haven folks who are on the road or maybe even in the air. I read a story about a man who was checking in for a flight and there was a sprig of mistletoe above the check-in counter. He asked the agent, what's that mistletoe for? And He said, mistletoe? (laughs) That's so you can kiss your luggage goodbye. That, by the way, has nothing to do with these verses, so we probably better get started. (laughs) Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham was the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, Ammon the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel and Shealtiel became the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abijah, excuse me, Abihud. Abihud was the father of Eliakim and Eliakim the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Eliad. Eliad was the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are fourteen generations, From David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. That's a long list of unfamiliar names, but it's part of the word of God, and it's there for a very important reason. Now, I have to admit, no one here has names Zerubbabel or Shealtiel, I told my wife Tara I wanted to name our first guy, our firstborn son Beauregard Bartholomew Bronson because the alliteration just rolled, I'm joking, <laughs> the alliteration just rolled off the tongue and you know she gave me one of those. These verses may seem like an odd way to start the account of the line of Jesus, but Matthew's gospel was written primarily to a Jewish audience. Family lines were very important to the Jews. They were so important that genealogies were kept in the temple for safekeeping. This is the genealogy that demonstrated that Jesus was, in fact, the prophesied Savior, the Son of David, and the long-awaited Messiah. Some of you who are experienced in the Word know that Luke also has a genealogy, and it's way different than Matthew's. But Luke's genealogy is the literal line of Jesus, Matthew's genealogy is the legal line of Jesus. Luke traces his lineage through Mary, his physical mother. Matthew traces his lineage through Joseph, who was not the physical father. He was the legal father. So these genealogies are not contradictory, but they are complementary, and here's the key. Both demonstrate that Jesus was the son of David and the long-awaited Messiah, and you will see this morning that this genealogy repeatedly points to you the grace of God given to us in the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Christmas grace is seen number one in the simple meaning of Jesus' genealogy. Look at verse one. It says, "The record of genealogy the, excuse me, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah." There's a somewhat similar statement in a different part of Scripture. It's in Genesis chapter 5, and you can turn there if you want for just a moment. Verse 1 of that chapter says this is the written account of Adam's line. So in Matthew, we have the written account of the Savior's line. In Genesis, the written account of the sinner's line. The line of Jesus is the line of eternal life. The line of Adam is the line of death. And Genesis chapter 5 teaches us that death is the ultimate destiny of every single person. It lists the names of men who are descended from Adam, and each of their lives are summarized in three grim words and he died. Genesis chapter 5 is the funeral chapter. Over and over again it says, and he died, and he died, and he died. Eight times you find the phrase, and he died. And 1 Corinthians 15, says, For as in Adam, all die. The destiny of the line of Adam is death. And that's bad news because you and I are in the line of Adam. And when Adam brought sin into the human family, he brought suffering and agony and pain and death, and no one escapes it. Now that's the line of Adam. The line of Jesus never mentions death. It speaks of giving life. Verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And on and on that goes until verse 16. It says Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. Messiah means the anointed one, the one to save this world from the line of death and to give whosoever will life. So you become part of the line of Adam by, part, by the way of physical birth, but to come into the line of Jesus, you have to come by spiritual birth. Jesus said you must be born again in order to see the kingdom of heaven. Jesus came to this earth to change you into a twice-born person in a once-born world. Now, if you're new to Christianity, Christmas means that God came in human flesh— His name is Jesus. I didn't understand that the first few years I was a Christian. And he came so your sins could be forgiven and you could have everlasting life. Being born into the line of death, it's hard to see that. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the gospel of the glory of Christ. And all the commercial paraphernalia surrounding Christmas helps obscure the real meaning But the simple meaning of Jesus' genealogy is that he came to save us from our sins. That's the simple meaning. But this morning, I want you to consider the surprising background. Now, you might think that Jesus, being holy, innocent, undefiled, and separate from sinners, would only have flawless people in his family line. They would be people of royalty and wealth. They would be people above reproach, people unlike us. But In his line, you find some royalty, but you also find some rogues. You find some holy people, and you find some unholy people. You find some wealthy people. You find some impoverished people. Jesus' ancestors were from every kind of background, but despite their differences, there's one thing that every one of them had in common. They were all sinners. That reminds us of two things. Number one, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every person ever born is a sinner. But it also reminds us that Jesus came to save every kind of person. And the Bible does not sugarcoat anyone in the line of Jesus. We first see an illustration of man's sin. Look, if you will, at verse 3. It says, Judah was a father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. The story of Judah and Tamar could come from today's news. I mean, you could dial it up on your phone in five seconds, and there's the story. Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law. Her husband, Judah's son, was killed by God for his wickedness. Jewish law called for a family name to be kept alive and for a widow to have provision. So another one of Judah's son married her, but he was so wicked, God killed him too. So Tamar is a widow again. Legally and morally, Judah was to provide for her by giving her another one of his sons. He decided he wouldn't do it. So she disguised herself as a prostitute to entrap him. And Judah, like his sons, was also an immoral man. And unaware of who Tamar was, he solicited her. And as deposit for payment, he gave her his signet ring, his cord, and his staff. Three months later, she turned up pregnant, not knowing he'd been busted, but full of hypocrisy. He said, bring Tamar out and let her be burned. And she would have been burned alive. But then she presented the results of the world's first paternity test. She said, I am with child by the man, excuse me, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. Please examine and see whose signet ring and cord and staff are these. Talk about getting busted. There are people who come through genealogies to find some great person they descended from. Jesus descended from Judah. Judah. And in verse 3, you find that a man named Perez, born out of adultery and prostitution, is also in the line of Jesus. Now, that doesn't legitimatize adultery, but it demonstrates that Jesus redeems every kind of person. He came for adulterers like Judah, widows like Tamar, and everyday people like Perez. Adrian Rogers famously said, There's no one so good they don't need to be saved, and no one so bad that they can't be saved. There was born for you in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So that's an illustration of man's sin, but then there's an extension of God's grace. Verse 5 mentions a woman named Rahab. In the book of Joshua, the pagan city of Jericho is under judgment. Rahab was too. Rahab was a harlot, a prostitute. I mean, here we go again. The Hebrews sent spies into the city, and someone discovered them, so they went to Rahab's house to hide, and the men of Jericho came to her house looking for them. She told the spies they were gone, but she said, If you chase them, you can overtake them. The truth is, she hid those spies on a roof. And she said in Joshua 2, 9, I know that the Lord has given you the land and the terror of you has fallen on us and all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea when you came out of Egypt. And then she said, for the Lord your God, he is God on heaven above and on earth beneath. Christmas is about hearing the truth of the coming of God to earth. He came from heaven above to earth beneath. It's an actual historical event, the birth of the one who came to save us from our sins. The people of Jericho heard the truth about God in heaven above and on earth beneath, but there was a difference between Rahab the harlot and everyone else in that city. They all heard the truth, But there's a difference between hearing something and receiving something. You hear the truth of the word of God with your ears, but you receive it with your heart. And right now you can hear the saving truth of the gospel with your ears and receive it and believe it in your heart. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of the Lord. Rahab the harlot received this truth. Now how do we know that? Hebrews chapter 11 is called the Saints Hall of Fame. Verse 31 in that chapter says, By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she welcomed the spies in peace. And those spies told her to hang a scarlet cord out of her window. That way, when they attacked, when judgment fell, they knew to spare the people in that house, including Rahab. And the scarlet cord points us To the blood of Jesus. Now, the fact those spies came to her means grace came right to her front door. It was an opportunity to believe. Christmas means grace has come to your front door. It's an invitation to believe that Jesus came as a babe of Bethlehem and that he was born to die on a cross for your sins. And if you believe on him as your Lord and Savior, you will be saved. Now, Rahab was a harlot, and the Bible doesn't tell us how that came about. One way people or women became harlots in biblical times was through the death of a husband. In a godless culture like Jericho, there may have been no one to help her, so that may have been her only means of subsistence. Maybe, maybe not. We don't know. But maybe some of you look at your life this morning, and you say, you know, I'm I'm not in very good shape. Or maybe you look at your past and you really don't think there's a way of overcoming that. In fact, you might have walked into this building this morning drowning in guilt and shame. I want you to notice something about Rahab. She's called a harlot several times in Scripture. She's called a harlot in Hebrews, a harlot in the book of James, a harlot several times in Joshua. But look at verse 5. She's just called Rahab. When you're brought into the line of Jesus, your past is under the blood of Jesus. As one writer said, you go from the house of shame to the hall of fame. You know, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Many people, most of you have probably heard that verse. That doesn't refer to people worn out by their responsibilities or people who are stressed or overscheduled with their kids. He's speaking to people who are weary and laden by their sin, and they want to be free from that burden of sin, so they make a trade. They give Jesus their sin and the burden of it, and he gives them eternal life. That's a pretty good trade. And now, despite all that surrounds them in the world, they can have genuine peace because they have a decided future. It's an extension of God's grace. But thirdly, we see an explanation of God's activity. This genealogy illustrates that God is always active in our lives, even when we think he's not. In verse 5, there's a woman by the name of Ruth. Her mother-in-law was named Naomi. And excuse my voice today. I'm still getting over a cold. Uh, The colds these days, you know, it's the gift that keeps on giving. Naomi and her husband went to Moab because of a famine in Judah. Her husband died, but one of their sons married this woman named Ruth. That was a problem. Ruth was a Moabite, a people who were enemies of God. The Old Testament law excluded her from the family of God. You say, why is that? Well, Moabites worship false gods. They were involved in child sacrifice, so they were under God's condemnation. As a Moabite widow, Ruth had no hope. So Naomi goes to head back to Bethlehem, and she told Ruth, go back to your mother's house. But Ruth said to Naomi, where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. And then she said, your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Back in Judah, they're they're in poverty. She's gleaning for grain for food, and she meets a wealthy man named Boaz. And even though she was a Moabite, and he was a Jew, He married her to preserve Naomi's family line and that day Ruth was brought into the line of Jesus and one day Ruth said to Boaz, why have I found grace in your eyes? That's a question we should all ask. Grace is God's undeserved favor and like Ruth, We were born under the condemnation of God. We sin. We worship false gods. We do the things that are against God's word and against God's will. But right now, God is active in your life. And by grace, if you've never been saved, he wants to bring you to his son, Jesus. So look at verse 5. It says, Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was was the father of David the king. That fulfilled the prophecy that the Messiah would be the son of David. Now, that's a surprising background of Jesus' genealogy. But number three, look at the sacrificial miracle of Jesus' genealogy. This genealogy tells us that Jesus was fully man and fully God. Look back at verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and so on. That speaks of a physical birth, a natural conception. And that trend continues until you get to verse 16. It says Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, not the father of Jesus, the husband of Mary by whom Jesus was born, who was called the Messiah. Jesus had no earthly father. He was born of a virgin. The virgin birth is one of the miracles of Christmas, and it is a bedrock bedrock doctrine of christianity. Now why is that a bedrock doctrine? If there's no virgin virgin birth, there's no deity of Jesus. If he wasn't born of a virgin, then he was born of an earthly man and an earthly woman. He would be 100% man and 0% god and no different from us. And if there's no deity of Jesus, then there's no sinlessness of Jesus. Jesus never sinned, not once in word, thought, or deed. But if Jesus was born of a man, then he was born into the line of Adam, the line of sin. And if Jesus wasn't sinless, then there's no atonement, no forgiveness for our sins. 1 Peter two twenty four says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. But if he sinned, he couldn't do that. No human can die and provide forgiveness for us. Imagine this morning if I said, I have good news of great joy for all the people. For 63 years ago in Topeka, Kansas, there was born for you a Savior whose name was Mike Bronson. You, that good news of great joy, I mean, you would shout. I'm surprised you're not shouting and jumping up right now. That'd be ridiculous. Only a sinless sacrifice can provide atonement. So the Savior had to be sinless, but he also had to be a man. No animal can die for our sins only a man can represent humanity as a sinless sacrifice only jesus is able to bear our sins And if there was no atonement then there's no salvation there's no salvation because there's no sacrifice for our sins and that means you and i are still in our sins it means jesus is still in the grave and if that's the case as paul said if we have hoped in christ in this life only we are of all men most to be pitied So, I want you to see number four, the saving message of Jesus' genealogy. And it's a twofold message. First, it is a prophetic message. And look down, if you would, at verse 17. It says So, all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Three sets of generations. Forty-two in total from Abraham to the first coming of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said there will be a generation that will see the signs of the second coming of Jesus. And one of them was this. When you see the budding of the fig tree, know that my coming is near. It is even at the door. The fig tree is a symbol of Israel. But Israel did not exist after 70 A.D. Rome wiped it out. I mean, they, they leveled Jerusalem. They leveled the whole area. They left, they were ruthless. I mean, they killed women, children, ev- they wiped everything out. And Jews were scattered among the nations for centuries. But on May 14, 1948, Israel was recognized by the United Nations as a country. and You see this conflict going on now. Well, there were Jews living there at the time, yet Jews from all over the world pulled up stakes and went to live in this fledgling nation. So Jesus said, when you see the budding of the fig tree, this generation will not pass until all these things are fulfilled. The question is, how long is the generation? Now, that's been debated by scholars for years. and No one can give a definitive answer. But look down at verse 31, because here's the prophetic message. In verse 31, the angel Gabriel said, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. The first four prophecies have been fulfilled. Mary bore a son. His name was Jesus, he is great, and he is called the Son of the Most High. The last three prophecies have not been completely fulfilled. He's not on the throne of David today. He is in a spiritual sense, but the throne of David is in the city of David, which is in Jerusalem. He won't physically be there until he comes again. Number two, he's not reigning over the house of Jacob. That refers to Jews. Most Jews in this world are unbelieving. When he returns, he will gather the believing Jewish remnant and will be their Lord. And number three, his kingdom will have no end. Well, that's true. He's king over all creation. But his kingdom exists in the heart and soul of those who love him. This prophecy, however, won't be fully consummated until he comes again in power and glory and every eye will see him. It's a prophetic message and it's a permanent message. His kingdom has no end. You are a human being with a body, but you have a soul, and that soul will exist somewhere forever. So it's fitting that we observe the Lord's Supper this morning. Now if you're new to this, what you're going to see is a little wafer and juice, and they're just symbols. We eat this bread and we drink this cup as Jesus commanded in his own words in remembrance of me. It's done in memory of him. That's why it's called the memorial view of the Lord's Supper. We're not partaking of his body and blood. These remind us of his body and blood. They point us back to the basics of the Christian faith. That Jesus was born to die on a cross in our place for our sins. That he was buried and that he rose again, and through him we can have eternal life. Now, the Bible teaches that if you're not saved, to refrain from participating in this ordinance. And if you are saved, but you've never been baptized, I want to encourage you to refrain as well, because baptism is the first act of obedience in the Christian life. Being unbaptized is disobedience. But some of you might say, you know, Should I participate in this with known sin in my life? Well, all of us have sin, and a lot of it. But what about known sin? Something the Lord has just made clear to you, and right now you've not turned away from it. That's part of the idea of this ordinance. This is a time to repent, to make something right as much as possible, to ask God for forgiveness, to pledge to make something right as soon as you leave here. Do all that and then participate with a clear conscience. This is a time of remembrance intended to focus us on Jesus, refresh our faith, and cleanse our hearts. So this is a time for all of us to be humble. These symbols of Jesus' body and blood, they remind us of how sinful we are. It took nothing less than God sending his own son at Christmas and then sacrificing him for our sin to save us from our sin. That has to clothe us with humility, and the Bible has no category for the self-righteous. It's a time to be humble, but man, it's time to be happy, smile. This reminds us of our perfect, complete, and secure salvation. We have nothing to dread on the day of judgment because the blood of Christ will answer every charge against us. But it's also a time to be holy. Our sins are forgiven. So Paul said in Romans chapter 6, shall we go on sinning so that grace might increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we continue to live in it any longer? The Bible says this is a time to examine ourselves. Here's a question that may come out of left field, but are you treating your spouse the way you would like to be treated? How about other people? How are you treating God, God's word, God's people? god's church use the plumb line of god's word to determine where you are in your walk with him it is a time to be holy and friends it is a time to be grateful and i'm going to ask the men who will serve the lord's supper to come it's a time to be grateful because look at what god has done for us he became human flesh for us he came as a vulnerable baby yet he grew into a man who was tempted and yet without sin. And I want you to hear this because there's often a misconception of who Jesus is and what he's like. Jesus is a mighty warrior who defeated sin and death. He is not a corpse laying in the grave, nor is he a weakling begging for man's approval. He is the mighty risen Savior. He is the almighty God of the universe who defeated sin and death, who stands above the universe in might and power, and right now all of heaven gives him glory. And yet through his unexplainable grace, he has secured your future if you're a Christian, and if you never have been, he's inviting you right now to trust him as your Lord and Savior. So Randy, I'm going to ask you if you would pray. And then we'll get started. You know, while they were passing these elements out, um, I was thinking to myself and trying to do what I told you to do. Um, And I thank God. This is what I prayed. I thank God that he doesn't ever judge us on the basis of our performance He judges us on the basis of his grace, and his blood answers every charge against us. He said, this is my body which is given for you. And then he said, I will not drink this fruit of the vine and from now on until the day I drink it with you anew in my Father's kingdom. And you can set those down the floor in the chair by uh, by you. Maybe you've never been saved and you've heard this this morning and um, we have several guests here so I won't tell my life story but I wasn't saved until I was 24. I was a I was a wild child. And I can remember being in church a couple times and hearing sermons, and I couldn't tell you a word that was said. So I I hope you'll just dial in for a second. Um, Jesus loves you, He sent His Son to die for you. And the point is, you're going to live forever. And Jesus wants it, He wants you to be with Him. And that's why He did all this. This is not some tradition that we celebrate as Americans. This is something, a historical event, that happened in human history. And right now, Christmas Eve, people are celebrating this all across the globe, every tribe, tongue, and nation. So this was done for you. And also, I don't want anyone to presume on their faith. Someone, sometimes I'll share the gospel, especially with someone who's older. And they'll say, oh, I I prayed to accept Jesus back then and kind of slough it off. The issue isn't ever what you did back there. The issue is what and who do you believe today right now at this moment? So if you've never been saved, this is your invitation. And if you have questions about that, you can use that QR code, scan it. You can talk to myself or Nathan or Kirk after the service, talk to someone here. Because all around this room, and I've been here for almost 18 years, there are people who are filled with the love of Jesus, and they would love to let you experience, to have you experience the life that they experience right now, that life of peace and joy and certainty of knowing that we'll be with Jesus forever. Now, our deacons have done a great job of serving our church this year, and they're going to be at the back to collect for our Benevolence Fund. And if you're, not, if you're new to that, the Benevolence Fund means they use that to help people in need, mostly people who are part of our church. So Nathan and the praise team are going to send us home, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing. Father, thank you so much for Christmas. Thank you so much for sending your son. Thank you that he died on the cross for our sins. Thank you that we are not judged and never will be on the basis of our performance but through your amazing grace, undeserved favor. I pray for people in this church and churches all across this town and this nation that there would be a great harvest of souls that many people would come to you in repentance and faith today. Thank you for our time together. We look forward to our time tonight and we pray it all in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, church, we have great joy, so let's stand and sing this song as we would close.
1: Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let the earth receive a King. Let every heart bear in room. Heaven and in heaven and nature sing. In heaven and nature sing. In heaven and heaven sing. Joy to, to the earth, earth the Savior who reigns, let men their songs and more. all the grow, nor thorns infest around, He comes to make His blessings flow, far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found.
0: Church, just like the angel spoke to the shepherds, Christ has come. May we go now remembering and living in the good news of Jesus Christ. Church, you are sent to love and serve the Lord.
1: Do you know that all the dark will stop the light from getting through? Do you wish that you could see? Does the Father truly love us? Does the Spirit move among us? And does Jesus on His side hold forever those He loves? Does our God intend to dwell?